Hey everybody, Dr. Nick here with another exciting episode of the Hospitality Spirit. Today I'm joined by Pablo Massari. Pablo is a principal at EDSA and a renowned landscape architect. Characterized by originality and responsiveness, Pablo's portfolio celebrates the essence of a space with carefully crafted environments that embrace beauty, allow form to follow function, and aesthetically reconnect with nature. His collaborative approach yields outcomes that are inspired by a thoughtful understanding of program, sustainability, and a synergy between the built and natural environment. With a sense of connection and identity between site, man-made elements, and ecologically processes, Pablo's designs provide dramatic juxtapositions by integrating habitats for people within the natural landscape. Pablo, thanks for being on the Hospitality Spirit today. Thanks for having me, Nick. So Pablo, we, we, I'm excited to have you on the podcast today for a variety of reasons. There's so much that we can talk about, but uh, in traditional hospitality spirit form, we always like to start with the current and to use a architecture term, we like to lay the foundation. Um, <laughs> so why don't you tell us a little bit about your current role um, as a principal and a little bit about EDSA? Sure. Well, thanks uh, again for having me, Nick. Um, here at EDSA, the company is structured in different studios or teams, and I happen to lead one of the teams with a couple partners. And uh, uh, normally a team is composed of something between 10 to 20 people. And uh, we are working currently on projects pretty much everywhere in the world because as we are a global company. Currently in, on the decks, we have projects in the Caribbean, some in the Middle East, in the U.S., and we are looking at potentially getting involved in some projects in Europe. That's great. So for those that aren't familiar, we have had great support from EDSA in the past, but for those of the listeners that maybe haven't listened to previous episodes, can you just talk very briefly about what a landscape architect is? And then we can use that then to, to dive into a little bit more detail. Good question. I would say the landscape architect is the is the the bridge between between the built environments and in the natural environments, right? And our job is to look at the land and look at the what the land's potential is and determine where you know buildings and roads and and uh, structures need to happen and what are the areas that need to be protected. So if you, if you want, you can draw a almost a, an analogy with a photographer. We, we, we work with two different lenses. One is the, let's call it the, the, the fisheye or the wide lens, right? When we arrive to a site and we look at the kind of the macro scale and we look at where things can happen. And then beyond the, the planning, and that's what we call the planning stages. And then after we're done with the planning stages and things need to materialize and buildings are being you know precisely designed then we start to operate in all the interstitial spaces in between buildings and that's where we look with the normal lens let's say mm -hmm. we look at things with a normal lens and that's when we act as as landscape architects so we really have two roles the land the land planners and we're also the landscape architects fascinating so i'm curious in terms of a timeline so somebody decides and Stop me and correct me if I'm if I'm kind of getting this timeline wrong. But if somebody decides, okay, I want to build a resort, I want to build a hospitality business, a, a big hotel, let's say a thousand room hotel, and they get the funding and they know where they want to go and they want to build it, is is that when you're engaged or before the decision is even made to build something and design something? Are they talking to you and saying, 
would a hotel work here? Would a resort work here? Where, where are you in that kind of pre that ground hasn't even been broken yet? Where are you in that process? Very good question. Uh, both. I would say the answer to that is both. We sometimes we're, we're approached by, let's say, a developer or a, a landowner, and they, they're looking at, at EDSA for advice on, on where things can happen or whether or not it's feasible to build a project in a, in a certain site. Uh, sometimes we're even approached by a developer to look at potential sites or within, a, within a, a, a group of sites, which is the best suited for what the developer wants to do. So that is when we act more as you know, advisors to a developer and we do feasibility studies for certain programs and, and projects. But uh, a, normal, a normal sequence is, is this. Uh, a developer has a site in site. Um, they have a program, and in your case, uh, let's say a thousand room hotel. And uh, we need to look at the land to see what the land's potential is, right? Mm-hmm. What are the, the, the micro aspects of the, of the land that allow us to erect buildings? And what are the areas that need to be saved for future generations to enjoy? What are the areas that are more ecologically sensitive where development doesn't make a lot of sense? Uh, so that's when we come up with what we typically call the master plan, right? Mm-hmm. The, is the depiction in, at one point in time of a full-blown development showing what needs to be saved, what can be played with, and then what the final result looks like in, in, in a graphic piece. Sure. What, you said something wouldn't be a good fit. What are, what are some scenarios where somebody might have this vision and they come to you and then you say, you know what, that vision isn't going to work here. What, what are some of the reasons that might happen? It happens very often. Oh, really? um, yeah, there, there are certain things, you know, we're, we're really good stewards of the land and we, we try to, it's almost, you know, inherited with the profession that you have to be, you have to protect the environment as, as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And there are instances where development wants to happen, let's say too close to a cliff or too close to a dune, a coastal dune, or right on the fringe of of a mangrove or a wetland or bridging a wildlife corridor passage. Those are the instances where we, as stewards of the land, say, maybe this is not the best solution. Maybe we need to look at an alternative where things kind of go around this and not necessarily through this. It seems like you would, your portfolio of knowledge, skills, and abilities must be incredibly broad because listening to you say that, it's you have to deal with regulatory issues, both state, local government. When you're in a foreign country, you've got to deal with that. But I'm assuming you also have to understand consumer preferences. You also have to understand the costs of doing things. I mean, it's it's an incredibly broad set of skills you must bring to the table, you and EDSA as a whole. It is, it is. And yeah, and the, the good thing is, you know, people's preferences, it's very similar everywhere you go in the world, right? So you know that if you're bringing let's say, development to a, a very unique destination or pristine environment, everybody wants to be as close to the feature, right, the focal point as possible. And we're there to negotiate the right balance. How close we get to it be, without necessarily affecting it or intervening. When, when you're, you mentioned that you've, you're potentially doing some work down in the, or you are doing work down in the Caribbean, potentially going to Europe. Are, are some of the, the larger issues pertaining to things like sustainability, climate change? Is that impacting a lot of your decisions now? I mean, particularly on... 
on the day. islands with with sea levels rising i mean because it's not because ideally you're correct me if i'm wrong but you're not looking is this going to be sustainable in five or ten years you're saying what Forever. happens in 20 50 yeah. four, you know 100 years from now right now good question yeah it affects our decisions every day sea level rise the number of storms the intensity of storms in the caribbean all those things uh, you know whether or not we were protecting mangroves which help you kind of define the coastal zone and, and protect from further erosion, from storm surge. Those are things that we looked at no matter where we go, right? Because those are inherited of just working in the, in the tropical zones throughout the, throughout the world. And I would imagine then also the, the customer has evolved too. I mean, how, how have you seen in your years and years and years of doing this, how have you seen the preference of the traveler change as it impacts what you then do and propose for your potential clients? I think it's a, yeah, it's, that's an interesting question. Uh, what we witness is, first of all, the traveler is more educated just because of the ability, the availability to, to access to information, you know, through, through websites and through social media, the, the average traveler knows a lot more where he or she is going. So much more knowledgeable. Students right. as well. I mean, it's right. the, the amount of information at the fingertips to help make purchase decisions is at no point in history has it been this plentiful. Right. And with that comes a big responsibility to, you know, working on projects that are respect the land and also offer a very authentic experience, right? Because, you know, you can replicate uh, a similar design or a similar experience in different parts of the world and people will call you out for it in a way, you know, so you have to be very authentic and you have to, you know, attack every project as, as it's the best project that you've ever worked on and it has to be unique and creative. In your, in your mind, is there, a, is there a jewel in the crown? I mean, something that you, if you're talking to somebody, if you're having a cup of coffee, you meet somebody new and you're explaining what you do and this modality, it's the listeners right now. Is there a property or a project either you're currently working on or maybe something in the past that you can showcase that really ties all this together? You know, being a good steward, client with a very unique uh, request, you proposing something that's incredibly, to use your word, authentic. Is there something that you have in mind that, that would be a good case study? Yeah, there are a few. And, and to ask a designer to pick among his favorite projects like, is like your asking a father, child. yeah, <laughs> pick your favorite children, yeah. Um, there's there's a few. Um, there was a project in Honduras that it was um, it was special because of where it where the project was located. It was embedded in in a buffer zone between two national parks. Mm. Um, in a you know, so you had to tread really really lightly there. The nice thing about the project is you start to you start to see the effect of your work in a longer terms. You know, sustainability is it's really made up of three different zones. One is the environmental sustainability, which is you know obvious to all of us. Then there's the financial sustainability, meaning that the project needs to be needs to sustain and needs to be feasible. And then there's the social sustainability, meaning whoever lives and has you know, settle around the project needs to be able to profit or, or at least take advantage of the project, right? Uh, so it has to lift the community around the project. And, and in that case, that was a project where the the fruit company had had some developments and, and you know, some research grounds. And just like it happened throughout Central America, the fruit company left and the town was kind of left without, you know, the major employer. 
mm-hmm. and uh, and you know through the the work of the developer and uh, and what this project kind of created for the area, you start to see little micro you know enterprises being created, the bakeries that would do business with the project, the the laundries that would do business with the project, mm-hmm. uh, the transportation you know smaller companies that would food purveyors, and yeah, everybody. Yeah. So you start to see that. Besides creating something beautiful and respecting the land and protecting the land where it could, it also started to benefit the population around it. Uh, so those are kind of neat things to experience. So you started to get to to that point when you're involved in a project for a longer period of time, you know, past the the, the decade. That's when you start to see the real effects of of a project in an area. Um, well, and you're seeing. I mean, in that case, you you are you're essentially creating sustainability with a culture. I mean the the uniqueness of that of the people that lived in between those two parks in Honduras offer something incredibly unique, and it, it's not like you can just pick those people up and move them to another place and Correct. have the same quality of life. I mean, you're you're dealing with generations and generations, and you become truly you become the steward of of their culture. That's right, um, and not two communities are alike, although some of the issues are very similar. But you gotta you gotta take every project as is. Has there has there been one that you can think of that has really challenged you and your whole team at EDSA? I mean that you went into it kind of with with you know you're you're gonna get the job done, but once you kind of roll up your sleeves and wade into the water, you know per se, it, you just say, "Wow, this is a lot more complex and difficult than I ever imagined." Yeah, there was a project that we we recently finished. Um, actually, it had to be finished during the the lockdown stages of the pandemic. So that's wow. a whole another level of complexity on its own. But yeah. this project was in the Riviera Maya in Mexico, and we knew going into the project and into the first or initial site visit that the project was very sensitive from the uh, ecological standpoint. And when we arrived, we saw that the majority of the project is it's you know covered or the majority of the land was covered with this kind of dwarf version of a of a wet of a mangrove right a, a wetland species and uh, and that's extremely sensitive and that uh, you have to be very very careful you know on how to approach development and on sites like this and what we found was that the mangroves had been damaged during a series of storms in the early 2000s and they were really um patches of missing mangroves and that's where the government had really allowed the developer to work on right to mm-hmm. to develop anything and uh and we looked at it and we said well this is going to be quite a challenge you know because first of all some of these patches are not even contiguous they're not connected uh so how, how do we do this well what we came up with uh with the architects and the developer and uh, the operator was a series of, of zones, right? And, and very defined zones. For instance, the front of the house, the arrival of the hotel, that happened in this larger piece that was clear near the entrance. Then the majority of the uh, room inventory happened along along a very, very narrow and elongated kind of patch. Uh, and then the restaurants and pools uh, and all the kind of the day beach-oriented amenities happened behind the, the, the coastal dune that, that was renourished by the developer, which was also kind of neat. So in connecting all these three zones, there were a series of boardwalks and, and pedestrian bridges that allowed you to kind of, you know, bridge the, the environment without necessarily damaging it. So I thought... 
the solution required a lot of a lot of work, uh, maybe even a heavier investment from the developer side. Mm -hmm. But at the end, the, the end result was really neat. Uh, and I think the project is getting a lot of praise these days. That's great. A couple more questions here. I, I'm, I'm curious if you could put yourself in the shoes of an oracle and try to predict the future. <laughs> what, I mean, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, are we, I mean, sustainability probably at, at, <clears throat> at no point in history has ever been as important. Correct. Um, consumers are more knowledgeable now than they've ever been. Hospitality and tourism continues to be the world's largest industry. One in 10 people work in it. Most developed countries have this as a significant contributor to GDP. So hotels and resorts and hospitality businesses aren't going anywhere. But I'm curious if you could predict 5, 10, 15 years from now, are we are we kind of still focusing on on everything now? Do you see other priorities coming into play? What, what does it look like as you pass the torch on to the next generation? I think I'm not a futurologist, but I can I, I can see that there are certain things that are going to be extremely important in the future. Right now, we're we're very careful on how we approach the land and and where things need to happen within the land or within the parcel. But I think in the future we're going to get uh, we're going to kick it up a notch and we're going to be looking at where the materials are made, uh, how the materials are made that that you know people use to build these these hotels. We're probably going to be looking at more materials sourced or or procured on site or near the site. Those are going to be important. And then almost every project I say I think will end up being a, a self-generating entity when it comes to energy and food production. I think that's going to be a given. That's going to be a must. Maybe not in next year or in a couple of years, but definitely in a decade. I see that happening. That's interesting. Um, That's interesting. So it's there's a it almost becomes a completely self-contained entity. I mean, I think so. I going think off so. The, so solar, wind, water, whatever it is that you use to generate the power, and then you're growing the food, the the resources there. That's a. I mean that 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 is ecotourism in its in the definition right there. Correct. Correct. If you look at you know all the the the, the transportation required to build a project, whereas you know materials that are sourced in a different continent and and even when the project opens the the things the, the furniture and the food where the food comes from everything requires to be moved around the world either by ship by air or by ground mm -hmm. and that all impacts our uh, you know our ability to to take care of this planet and to lower the ever rising temperature right so i think it's going to be of utmost responsibility of every every developer every owner to create a project that is uh, carbon neutral at least and it seems like you'd also get tremendous support for that from customers governments variety of things. It's not just from a business perspective, being sustainable is good. There's there's an ethical and a moral yeah, reason that, to that as well. That's a point in question or, or comment. I think today you get praised by travelers. If you do that, I think in the future is going to be required by them. Yeah, that was that's kind of where I was going. They're going to is, demand this. Yeah. I mean, we've when I put my research hat on, you know, part of my job is I do research. And some of that research has been based on traveler intentions and you know, asking a really simple question, would you, you have two hotel options, one hotel charges $10 more because they're doing that to offset some of their, their, their costs to be more sustainable. Will the customer choose that more expensive hotel because of the social responsibility aspect? 
five, 10 years ago, I, I think that was, that was up for debate. I think, I think you're right, though. Going forward, you're going to see that becoming more of not just a preference, but a requisite in the mind of the traveler. Yeah, and we might even see some changes on, on, on mobility in general, right? Um, I think today is acceptable that you know you move by air wherever you want to go. Maybe in the future, not so much. Maybe the air travel is going to be limited to the, the transcontinental mm -hmm. uh, type of trips. And then maybe we will be able to develop uh, ways to move people around in regional terms that is more cost-effective and doesn't need to burn so much fuel. Oh, Pablo, you and I could do a whole podcast on why I think we need high-speed rail yeah, <laughs> in, no kidding. in the U.S. Uh, no kidding. For those that have traveled throughout China or, or Europe on high-speed rail, you will. You're smiling right now because you wish the whole world had, had that. It's, That's it correct. Is, it's, a, it's an easier, more efficient, and clearly a more sustainable way to travel. Pablo, as we kind of wrap up here, I'm curious if someone is listening to this podcast and you have lit a spark in their mind that this is something that they might want to do. How does somebody get involved in landscape architecture? Is this, do you have to go to school for it? I mean, is it something that if there's a will, there's a way in terms of learning it? What, I mean, when you look at the composition of your team, I'd imagine you have people with a variety of skills. And I'm just curious, how does somebody, if a college student is listening to this right now and they want to go work for EDSA one day, what should they be doing now to make sure that's a possibility? Uh, I would have answered that question maybe 10 years ago very differently than today. But there is a traditional path, right? That is to go to school, go to college and study landscape architecture. And the profession per se was created here in the United States. Uh, and some of the best programs are in the United States, if you ask me. Uh, so that's a that's a traditional route. But, you know, however, there's people all over the world that are creative and they're sensitive enough that they know how to be good stewards of the land. And they don't need to be landscape architects. Here in our office, we have plenty of architects and even some engineers that are joining our, our practice uh, with, with, you know, with a different kind of mindset. Uh, so, but I would say, yeah, if you're, if you're in the U.S. and you have the ability to choose your program and your college you're going to attend, Picking a, a college that has a landscape architecture program would be a, a good start. That's great. Well, Pablo, this has been a wonderful conversation. I am in agreement with you that I think that sustainability and being a good steward for not just the environment, but for cultures, the land, is where the focus needs to be. We do not have an infinite supply of that. There are signs in the horizon that this needs to become an incredibly big priority for us. And I just want to say thank you for coming on the podcast today and sharing some of your thoughts and, and explaining a little about what you do. And I continue to be fascinated by it. I'm, I'm not going to be a landscape architecture person, but, <laughs> but I will always appreciate the, the end product. So thanks so much for being on the podcast. Today. Well, thanks for the opportunity. I really enjoyed it. And uh, hopefully we'll do this again. 